0: Well, this morning, we are going to return to our ongoing discussion of marriage from Matthew chapter 19. And oftentimes, when we encounter uh, rather large topics in the Bible, things like marriage or salvation or sin or the end times, these large, expansive topics, really, it occasions us to, to slow down and take a longer look At the issue, in order that we might grow in understanding. And it seems as though lately, probably since maybe Matthew 16 and on, we just keep on landing on these really large topics, and I don't have a choice. I can't, in good conscience, power through quickly and just move on. We have to slow down. And look, because there's so much that's rich here that I want you to see from the Word of God. And so that is our desire, because the Bible does. It deals with real issues that affect real people, and it gives us real answers. And there are fewer topics, really, that affect us more than our own relationships, but we're talking about marriage, which has also led us into a discussion about the doctrine surrounding divorce and also the area of remarriage. And eventually we'll end up talking about singleness and also children. These are all the things that are coming down the pike here. But I want to jump back in. So turn in your Bible to Matthew 19, Matthew chapter 19. And this discussion in Matthew 19 is really occasioned by a question that is posed to Jesus by the Pharisees. And as we're going to come to see, it's not a sincere question. They don't really care what he has to say to them in terms of they're not looking to learn from him, but this question is designed to entrap them, or entrap him, I should say. And so we pick it up in Matthew chapter 19. We've read this passage several times the last couple of weeks. We're going to read it again. Matthew 19, starting in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, and asking, is it lawful For a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, the crux of this issue for the Pharisees came about through the theological debate that had been raging in that culture at that time between two main schools of thought regarding the biblical grounds for divorce. And on one view, the more conservative school of Shammai, as we talked about a few weeks ago, that conservative school maintained that divorce was only permissible in light of sexual immorality. The other side of the debate, the more liberal school of Hillel, believed that the Bible permitted a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all. Anything. Of course, knowing that whatever Jesus said, somebody would be angry, the Pharisees, they tried to trip him up with this question, And their goal was to discredit him in front of the eyes of the people. So no matter what he said, if I support Shammai, then all the liberals are going to be angry. If I support Hillel, then the conservatives are going to be angry. So no matter what he does, someone's going to be angry, and the Pharisees are banking on that because they want to get rid of him. But Jesus does not go where they think he's going to go. He doesn't answer them according to their question. He doesn't even begin by talking about divorce, at least not immediately. Rather, instead, Jesus articulates the biblical, traditional view of marriage. And first, he quotes from Genesis 1-27, noting that the concept of marriage is rooted in the fact that God has created men and women for each other to go together. And based on this... He cites Genesis 2.24, that a man and a woman were meant to leave the loving confines of their families and be joined, or the Greek or the Hebrew is literally to be glued or cemented together. And when this happens, something new takes place. They become one flesh. So not just one in body, which happens through their physical relationship, but also one in heart, one in mind, one in faith, one in purpose. They become one flesh. And Jesus emphasizes this truth in verse 6. He says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. And so marriage is a one flesh union. It's at this point that Jesus speaks about anything answering their question. He says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so God desires not divorce, but rather God desires faithfulness in marriage. In fact, I would add that every single discussion that we would have about divorce should begin and end with God's command for us to be faithful in our marriage covenant because that's what it is. It is a marital covenant agreement, a a promise made between two parties that we will fulfill the loving requirements of marriage to our own spouses. That's what you signed up. When you got married, that's what you signed up for. That you are professing not just your love, but your faithfulness. You are entering into an agreement. Vows, we we call them vows. I vow to you, I promise to you that I will do X, Y, Z, and you will promise to me to do X, Y, Z. And that's the whole design of a marriage covenant agreement, a loving agreement. Of course, this isn't what the Pharisees wanted to hear. And so they press him on the issue. Because remember, Jesus is articulating marriage, that's not their question. Verse 7, they said to him... Why, then, did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? They don't let up on the question. And really, the question is coming from varying interpretations of a verse in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24, one, which discusses the practice of handing a wife a certificate of divorce and sending her away. In essence, however, we looked at this last time, the passage in Deuteronomy 24 that's in question, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, deals with the fact that once a divorce is granted, a husband couldn't go and then call that wife back at a later time under that original agreement. So the idea, and just very briefly, is that a husband divorces his wife, sends her away, she marries another man, and that man either divorces her or he passes away, he dies. The agreement is is that divorce ended that marriage, and that man can't go back and operate under the same covenant. So the broader principle is that a certificate of divorce effectively ends the marriage. But the Pharisees were focused on the wrong thing. They were focused on the conditions of surrounding their so-called right to divorce their wives. So they were pressing the question, If God doesn't want us to divorce our wives, they're asking, then why, why did Moses then give us a certificate of divorce and tell us we can send our wife away? Why would the Bible tell us to do that if God doesn't want us to do that? Look at verse 8. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way. He gets to the very heart of why divorce is even necessary sometimes at all. In the Pharisees' case, and that's in the context, that's directly who he's dealing with is the Pharisees and their question. And that becomes important as we discuss this later on. But in the Pharisees' case, their hearts were hardened to the point where there was no grace, no kindness at all for their wives. They were hard-hearted men. They were fleshly. They were selfish. And we know from history that these men had a propensity to divorce and remarry at a rapid rate. It was not uncommon for them to have two, three, four-plus wives Because anytime they found something wrong with their first wife, they'd send her away and they'd do it lawfully. And they'd find someone younger or prettier or more desirable to them. They'd marry them. And then when they got tired of them, they'd hand a certificate of divorce and go on to the next one. And it was just this perpetual adultery. And they wanted to sanction their own adultery and, and lustfulness with the law. And Jesus says, you're wrong. You're wrong. You can't do that. See, without God's provision to give their wives a certificate of divorce, they would have consigned their wives, because of the hardness of their own hearts, they would have consigned their wives to either becoming adulteresses by seeking another husband without being divorced, or paupers, beggars, left to beg for money and provisions on the street. And so we have to see that for for the women in this situation, a certificate of divorce is a merciful provision because these men were just bent on ruining their own marriage because of their own sinfulness. Again, divorce in this case is a mercy. But it was never supposed to be this way. That's the point. This isn't God's desire for men and women to just play this game of marriage and divorce and just serial adultery. God didn't build us for that. In fact, God hates divorce. Why? Well, because it destroys a union that he has created It defiles those who are involved. You give yourself to a spouse. Then you rip that whole relationship apart and you have to go give yourself to another spouse and another spouse. It starts to ruin your own soul if it's not done correctly. It destroys the family members that are affected by it. I mean, divorce has ramifications that are just beyond compare. I think one of the single greatest problems in our country today, it's not the stuff we see in the news right now, the origin of a lot of these problems of identity, sexuality, and beyond is rooted in the, the no-fault divorce and, and, and rooted in the fact that we are just addicted to selfishness. And we just we, and we legalize our desire for adultery. And it's the, it's the rampancy of sinfulness that has perpetuated all of these other things. This is only the, the rotten fruit of what's been going on for 50 or 60 years. This has such... A profound impact on culture and on families. I know of which I speak, by the way. And so, no, the Lord does not sanction divorce for any reason at all. That's not what he says. Rather, he tells the Pharisees in verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. He does give them an exception, and that's important to note. He gives an exception. What is it? He says it's for the cause of in the Greek it's porneia porneia sexual immorality. It's not just adultery; that's a different Greek word. It's broader. It's any kind of sexual immorality, and we could list a whole number of things that are applied here. But I think you understand what I'm talking about. Any sexual immorality that violates the sanctity of the marriage covenant. And the question is, well, why this one? Why sexual immorality is the cause or the grounds for biblical? Or, or biblical grounds for divorce. Well, because sexual sin defiles and destroys marriages in a way that other sins simply don't. It, it violates trust. You get into a marriage and you have a, a special bond with somebody. Certainly, it's a physical bond. But those of you who are in the in the room who are married know that the physical bond. There's something that goes beyond that physical bond. You're you're uniting your soul to that other person which takes place through the physical act, but there's also more going on. There's an emotional attachment, a a spiritual attachment, a mental attachment. There's a trust that you build. Sexual immorality destroys that trust. It defiles the body. It perverts the mind. It taints the soul. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, every other sin that a man commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. And I would also add to that the body of his spouse. When you bring that kind of immorality into your own body, you're then sharing it with your spouse as well. Now, no sin is beyond forgiveness. That's important to note here. This is not the unforgivable sin. Jesus never says that sexual sin terminates a marriage automatically. He never says that. Divorce is not required. Divorce is not required. In fact, forgiveness and restoration, reconciliation is better, way, way better, if it can happen. But there are times when it cannot happen. Either the sinning spouse is unrepentant completely and they've hardened their heart and they will not repent and there's nothing you can do, or the sin is just too egregious that there's no way to reconcile. Jesus grants that sexual immorality is permitted as biblical grounds for divorce. However, at this point, we have to acknowledge, and this is is about as far as we got last week, but we have to acknowledge here that Jesus does not, and I don't believe he intends to, give the final word regarding divorce in this passage. I don't believe that's his intention. Well, how do we know that? Well, because the Apostle Paul also addresses divorce but on a separate grounds, a different issue altogether, and that will bring us to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So turn in your copy of Scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And when I was contemplating doing this series on marriage and divorce and remarriage, the question was posed to me why do we have to keep on pressing into Scripture farther and farther? Can we just only deal with. Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, and just kind of move on, and, and I, to just push back, I don't believe that we can, because all of this has larger ramifications, and frankly, as a teacher, I would rather try to instruct and help you to think through these issues as the Bible brings up the questions, and try to get us a little closer to biblical understanding. And also, with that, knowing that we will not have complete understanding. Because there are many, many, many questions that arise from this topic. And if you've studied anything about the doctrine of marriage as it relates to Scripture and Christianity, it is a, it is a challenging and potentially thorny topic to discuss. And we'll get into some of that today. But 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, the Gospel of Matthew records Jesus' dealings with a Jewish audience. While 1 Corinthians records the teachings of Paul dealing with a non-Jewish or Gentile audience. And the Corinthian church, they had different challenges than the Jews who were comprised of churches in Jerusalem. And especially the issue was the the question of spiritually mixed marriages. Spiritually mixed marriages. If If you were Jewish and you were coming into the body of Christ in Israel... It was understood that you're marrying another Jewish person and you have a commonality, you have a common ground of understanding and believing the law. The difference was do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? But the the basis for your understanding of all morality had to do with your understanding of the Torah and the the Bible. But in other cities, in the Gentile cities, you don't know what you're going to get. Most times they were coming together as complete pagans with all kinds of ideas about marriage and divorce and promiscuity and whatever. And so Paul is dealing with a very different issue in his context than Jesus was in his context. Now, the first 16 verses of First Corinthians chapter seven, Paul covers a lot of ground. Now, one of these days, whenever I preach through First Corinthians, we'll spend a lot more time. we'll probably spend three, four years on just that one chapter, and that'll be fun. But for now, I'm not going to be able to cover all the complexity that is in this chapter. We will not exhaust all of it, but my hope is to give you some help in just thinking through the issues that are raised here. Paul provides some very helpful teaching in the issues of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and to come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and, and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain as I am, or even as I, But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? One thing we have to note here again is that Paul covers a lot of ground in a short space. It was almost as if he had been talking to them for quite some time and then used the letter as an occasion to respond to some of their questions and just give kind of staccato details very quickly moving through he addresses several different groups of people in rapid succession. If you look at your text, you can see he's it's like he's looking at the church and he's moving from group to group to group very quickly. Much of this is either repeated or embellished from other parts of the Bible, but just look at this very quickly in verses 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul lays out the mandate for purity and chastity. He's discouraging sexual promiscuity and unlawful sexual activity. He's essentially saying it's not good for you to just mess around all the time, and if you can't control yourself, then you should probably get married. That's essentially what is the overarching idea is in verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 through 7, now you, you get into individuals who are to be married. He says if you are married or you are to be married, he says you are to be faithful to your spouse And also, not deprive one another of the most basic obligations of marriage. Essentially, he's saying, be good to each other. Don't deprive each other. Verse 5, he specifically talks about the importance of a married couple engaging in regular, consensual sexual activity. He says, your body's not your own, it belongs to your spouse, in both cases. He says, don't deprive each other, but come together at an agreed upon time. That's really important. Agree together about when you're going to join. And then in verses 8 through 9, he moves again to a different group and he addresses widows in the church. Notice he doesn't tell them that they have to get married after their spouse passes away, but he says that they should consider it if they need to. It's right for them to get married if they desire. Verses 10 and 11, he moves again and addresses another group. Now he's addressing Christian couples. Christian couples. So, specifically, where both husband and wife are Christian believers. I want to look at these verses again. Verses 10 and 11. He says, But to the married, that's the group here, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. I want you to notice what he says here. This is very interesting. He says his instructions aren't coming from himself, the apostle. He says these instructions are coming from the Lord. Now you might scratch your head and say, wait a second, isn't all the Bible inspired by God? Isn't all the Bible from the Lord? Yes, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. What is he talking about? He's saying essentially this. Because Jesus has already given instructions to the church about this issue. And what is he referring to? Well, he's referring to places like Matthew 19, Mark chapter 10, which is a parallel passage. He says, Jesus has already spoken about this, so I'm not telling you anything new. This is from the Lord who tells you these things. And all Paul does here is repeat God's desire for marriage. Look at verses 10 and verse 11. He has two corresponding statements. Verse 10, the wife should not leave her husband... Verse 11, the husband should not divorce his wife. And then the question persists. Well, what if a Christian couple does get divorced? What if they do get divorced? Paul says they are to remain unmarried. Why? The reason is because God desires reconciliation. That if they are both believers and something happens and they get divorced, they should try to remain unmarried, even if they are apart from each other, so that they can be reconciled and try to get back together. That's the desire. And I've heard of stories where a husband and a wife, they get divorced, they go their separate ways, they remain unmarried, and then they are able to get back together and become friends again and work out their issues, and then they get remarried. Pastors have told me stories about doing remarriage ceremonies in their church of husbands and wives who had broken apart and come back together. And I'll tell you, the second one is extremely joyous because they have reconciled and now they're back together. When that happens, it is a wonderful, beautiful thing. Now, of course, we understand that Jesus does give an exception in that case. And the exception here is on the grounds of sexual immorality. If sexual immorality has taken place and no reconciliation is possible, then you would not have to remain unmarried. Because by implication, you could go find another spouse there. But again, the overall principle, that's what I want to focus on, the overall principle from Matthew 19, and also here in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11, is that Christians must do everything that they possibly can to remain faithful in marriage. If you, if you walk away with nothing else today, walk away with that. A Christian couple is to do all they can to be faithful to each other in marriage. Because after all, a Christian couple is united in one spirit. Do we not all have the same Holy Spirit dwelling in us? Are we not all of the same mind? Are we not all in submission to Christ? Do we not all submit ourselves under the authority of the scriptures? So if you have a a Christian husband and a Christian wife and all that is true for them, then they are both bound by God to reconcile and work together. Two spirit-filled Christians ought to be able to repent, forgive, reconcile, and be restored all for the glory of God. There should be no such thing as irreconcilable differences between Christians and marriage. It should not be a thing. And yet we recognize that even Christians sin in their marriage, and those sins oftentimes will come with consequences. And we know that that sadly does happen, doesn't it? Where things cannot be reconciled, and it's a sad thing. But let's move on just briefly. We will come back. Verses 12 through 16 now addresses another group, a different group. Not of two Christians who are coming together in marriage, but of a spiritually mixed marriage. This is one believing spouse and one unbelieving spouse. And it's within this section, dealing with spiritually mixed marriages, that we have a couple of hypothetical situations here. The first one comes in verses 12 through 14. So he has this one group, but there's two hypothetical situations in that one group. I don't want to confuse you all, but there's a lot going on here. So I'm trying to keep it clear. This first scenario describes a situation where the unbelieving spouse is content in the marriage and wants to remain in the marriage. And that does happen, doesn't it? Where you have a husband and a wife, and one of them is a Christian, comes to church, is involved in body life and growing in the Lord. The other one's not a Christian, but they're, they're for all intents and purposes, they're, they're doing okay in the marriage. They're fine with the fact that their spouse goes to church. They still love each other. They want the marriage to work. They just don't believe in Christ, and that's a different issue altogether. But in terms of the marriage, the marriage is working. Verse 12, he says here, If a Christian man has a non-Christian wife, but she loves him and she wants to stay, then it is not God's will for that man to bail on his non-Christian wife in order to pursue a Christian wife. And I've heard of that happening before. Of a situation where a Christian says, Yeah, I just, I, you know, I want them to go to church with me. I want to have a life with them. And what happens is they, that they they whittle away at their own mixed marriage until they kind of shove the non-Christian spouse out. And they say, oh, okay, now I can go find a Christian spouse. That's not in the will of God, believe it or not. And you might think, you might rationalize, well, doesn't God want me to be in a, a Christian marriage? Well, Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe it is God's will that at this season of time you're in a spiritually mixed marriage, and we'll talk about why in just a second. It is not God's will for you as a Christian to pursue the divorce, to ruin your own marriage. Nor is it his will that you drive them away so you don't have a guilty conscience when they leave. Verse 13, it's the vice versa. A woman who has an unbelieving husband He consents to live with her. She must not send him away. Why? Verse 14. Listen to this. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. What does this mean? Essentially, Paul's not making the argument that a non-Christian husband becomes a de facto Christian just because he's married to a Christian wife. That's not how salvation works, right? You don't marry a Christian and kind of get in good. And I've actually heard of stuff like that. Well, my wife goes to church. Well, that's nice. It doesn't mean anything for you, my friend. You must repent and believe the gospel and be converted. You must be. You can't just get good points because your wife is a holy roller. That's not how this works. Rather, what's going on here? The husband and the children, mind you, are sanctified. Meaning what? they're set apart that's what the word means they're set apart they're consecrated because of the influence of the believing spouse john calvin notes that it's the godliness of the believer that is the sanctifying influence in the home and when they if they were to leave then they would no it would no longer or excuse me no doubt plunge the household into worldliness and into spiritual uncleanness and i've seen that happen too where the only positive, godly, moral Christian influence that was in the house, something happens and they're gone, and everything just goes into rot and ruin. But here's the thing, the believing spouse, if they're engaged in the marriage and if they're faithful, it's not only as a moral influence on the family, which it is, but it's also an evangelistic influence on the family. There's a better chance that the unsaved spouse hearing the gospel, and here's the thing, witnessing Christ-like character in the marriage is going to bear fruit in that marriage. Because you all know this if you're in a relationship. You know that you bump up against each other and you're in each other's lives. And you know if your spouse is full of baloney or not, right? You can see through the smoke screens. Whatever they say to their friends when the friends come over is one thing. But what they say to you in the confines of your own home, it's another thing. So if you're a Christian spouse, you have an obligation before the Lord And for the sake of your family, to bear a strong witness in your own home. It's great to evangelize other people, and you should. But I'll tell you, if you're in a spiritually mixed marriage, or if your children are unbelievers, there is a mandate on you to live out your faith at home. And I'll tell you, it is hard, because you can't hide. You can't put on just a a brave face. They see if you're struggling, but how do you resolve? Do you repent when you're wrong? Do you trust in the Lord? Do you pray as often as you can? Do your children see you in the Bible? Do they see you in the scriptures? Are you working to resolve conflict biblically? All these things are you living as a Christian at home. That's why Peter tells Christian wives in 1 Peter 3 to win over their husbands by their godly behavior. That the imperishable quality of their gentle and quiet spirit would have a transformative impact on him. So if your unbelieving spouse wants to stay in the marriage and commit themselves to the marriage, then the believing spouse is to stay as well. You might ask the question, well, isn't that going to be difficult? Am I going to feel lonely? Sometimes you will. And sometimes it will be hard. Yes, it is difficult. God does not always, and I would actually add rarely, call us to a life of ease. The Christian life is difficult. It's hard. Of course it is. But this is God's ministry for you. This is his ministry for you. To be a light to those who don't yet know Jesus. And I would even add this. It's a privilege. Because here, think about this with me. Who better to lead your family to the Lord than the one who loves them the most? You are an evangelist to your beloved spouse, and to your beloved children. Now, the second scenario. But what if, what if you have an unbelieving spouse who's not happy in the marriage and wants to leave, or they've already left? That happens too. And maybe not by the fault of the believer, but maybe the unbelieving spouse says, you know what, I didn't sign up for this. You weren't a Christian when I married you 20 years ago. What's the deal? Or they think, well, this Christianity thing, it's, it's good for the family, but then they realize the serious implications of a, a Christ-like life. And they say, you know what? This is just too much. I don't like that you spend all this time with these other people. I don't like that you're always talking about uh, you know, evangelism. And I don't like that you pray all the time. And I, what's all this with you reading the Bible? I, I didn't sign up for this. That happens in marriages. What happens when they decide to leave? Verse 15. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. This verse, verse 15, has been understood as a proof text for allowing divorce on biblical grounds due to the desertion of an unbelieving spouse. But let's look at this verse. It says, if the unbelieving spouse, the unbelieving one, leaves, in other words, that they, they either move out or they tell you that they want a divorce and they're just, they're just done. Or even if they just leave and never come back, that happens too. What do you do? What can you do? What does Paul say here? He says, let them leave. If they leave and they won't come home, and I've talked to people, you know, what do I do? They don't want to come home. They they say they're done, and what do I do? And they're beating their head against the wall. Paul says, let them go. He doesn't desire, the Lord doesn't desire for you to to fight beyond reasonability and to plead and agonize with an unbelieving spouse if they simply don't want to be in the marriage anymore. Now, I'm not saying don't contend, don't meet with them, don't pray for them, don't pursue, but if they put up a wall and they say, listen, stop calling me, I'm done, and they block your number and they move their stuff out of the house and they don't want to or they go and find someone else and they shack up with somebody else, what do you do? Again, you're not, you're not supposed to drive them away intentionally, but they might not simply want to be married to a Christian spouse. And that's not your fault. It's not your fault. And so what is the overarching principle here? Paul says it. God has called us to peace. Paul, or God desires peace. That's why he says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. That includes your spouse. Now there's a, some relativity to that verse. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, meaning that we all have different tolerances. Some spouses will say, you know what? I know they walked out, but I'm not letting them go. And I'm not miserable about it. I'm, I just, I'm emphatic. I want them to come to Christ. I love them. I'll do whatever it takes. And, and they're, they're professed they're going to stay pursuing that person. And if that brings you a measure of peace in knowing that you're doing God's will by going after them, as so far as it depends on you, if that's peaceful, then by God's grace, that's good. But that's not what's going on here. This is a contentious marriage to a person who hates Christ, who is devoid of the Holy Spirit, who rejects the word of God, who loves their sin. That's not a recipe for a loving marriage. And at a certain point, that will defile you as a believer. That will start to rot away at your own faith. And so the Bible says, if they leave, let them leave. And then he says this, and this is really important. The brother or sister, husband or wife, is not under bondage in such cases. What does this mean? What does this mean? It means that if the unbelieving spouse leaves, and thereby they're violating their marriage covenant, the Christian spouse who is left behind is not bound or trapped. Another way to translate this word is enslaved. They're not bound in that marriage any longer. We see the same word, actually, the same kind of imagery used in Romans chapter 7, verses 1-3, through 3, with regard to the death of a spouse and widows. The Apostle Paul notes that a woman is bound to her husband while he's still living, but if he dies, the Bible says, she is released from the law concerning her husband. Being released means that she's free to remarry. She's no longer in that marriage covenant anymore. Now, we're going we're to talk about remarriage next week. I want to work through this systematically. We'll talk about remarriage, and then we will talk about singleness as well because the Bible has a lot to say about that topic as well. But with regard to divorce here, a believer whose unbelieving spouse deserts the marriage is no longer bound by it and is released to be able to divorce and remarried if they so choose of course i say all this and we recognize the reality this is an extremely difficult and heartbreaking thing this is not something we're to take lightly because here's how this is nobody nobody gets married with plans of divorce nobody has it in their head oh in 20 years i'm going to go divorce this person they don't ever think that way you get married and you have the whole world's in front of you. I'm going to love you to the day I die. And you romanticize. Oh, we're going to be old and, and just sitting in chairs holding hands and watching the people's court and all, you know, all this other stuff. Anybody remember that show? I don't think anybody watches that show anymore. But don't we romanticize? Don't we think about, all oh, long 60, 70-year marriage? Again, nobody plans to divorce. And yet sometimes it happens. And there are believers and they want to hang on and they, they might hope that they're believing that their spouse might come to Christ and they might come home and, and they just wait and they wait and they wait. I've even known of cases where, I'm just in my mind I'm thinking about a specific case where a, a non-Christian husband, he actually went to church, pretended to be a Christian, but then it came out he wasn't a Christian at all. He left the marriage, he deserted the family, went and lived with somebody else. And the Christian spouse who was devastated, she hung on. For years and years and years. And she, she actually became financially ruined. People had to help her to get back on her feet. She just really struggled. She, she couldn't let him go. He deserted and went to somebody else. And she struggled so much. Verse 16. Paul reasons. He says, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? The truth is you don't know. You could be waiting forever. Maybe it is not in the plan of God that they will be saved. But here's the thing. The point is not whether you have to give up on your unsaved spouse. That's not the point. That's not the point at all. The point of this passage is to say that you don't have to stay if the spouse leaves and deserts and walks away. Again, verse 15. If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, for God has called you to peace. Now, having said all of this, I recognize that 1 Corinthians 7.15 has been the subject of much debate. And as you can imagine, the whole issue of biblical grounds has been the subject of strenuous debate. And without challenging or attacking the word of God, there have been scholars through the years that have been asking the questions. And they're asking, they're not saying, is the word of God uh, have anything to say about this issue but they're asking the question are we rightly interpreting the word of God on this question because it's never been settled there has never been an ecumenical council to land on the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage churches have been wrestling, Christians have been wrestling for years, are we rightly interpreting the scriptures because here, here are the, some of the questions that get raised and I know you've probably heard these too and so have I what about issues of abuse or neglect It's hard to bring a woman to church discipline if she's been murdered by her husband. So how does that work? Certainly God has something to say about these things. And I want to just tread lightly here, but I want to talk about this. If we understand that marriage is a covenant, then we also must understand that there are conditions which must be met so as not to violate that covenant. What are those conditions? Well, we already can infer several of those Jesus instructs in Matthew chapter 19 that there must be sexual faithfulness. And if there is not sexual faithfulness, there is biblical grounds for divorce. But are there other conditions? Are there other conditions? Exodus chapter 21, which is interesting, contains provisions. And I don't want to exhaust this too much here, but I do want to bring this up. Exodus 21 talks about a Hebrew man who, in the situation he's in, marries one of his slaves, and then Moses notes that if that man then go and marries another woman, a second wife, a free woman, and again, the Bible's not sanctioning this, but it says if it happens, he is required to fulfill certain obligations to his first wife. He can't ditch his first wife for his second wife, because otherwise, if if he does, the Bible says she's actually free to go. And what must he provide? Exodus 21.10 says, if the man takes to himself another woman, he may not, in the case of the first woman, reduce her food or her clothing or her conjugal rights. And so it's argued that if this is true of a slave wife, how much more is it for a free wife? But is there a principle in this provision? It is that this, that God commands a spouse to provide both materially and emotionally for those they have married. What's interesting about this is that we see very similar sentiments reflected in the New Testament passages about marriage. Just to give you a couple examples, Ephesians five twenty nine commands that husbands are to nourish and cherish their wives. You heard that this morning already. There's certainly an element of physical care, food, clothing, even intimacy. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3-5, through which we read, commands that husbands and wives fulfill their duty to their spouse to offer physical intimacy. They're not to deprive each other. That's similar to the conjugal rights of Exodus 21. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32-35 to talks about husbands and wives pleasing each other. This implies that they're focused on meeting each other's physical needs. Even so far as 1 Timothy 5.8, goes on to say that if a father or any man does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so we see that there are various responsibilities that must be maintained by husbands and wives for order, in order for them to be faithful to their marriage covenant. To say it another way, to neglect the care for your spouse to abuse them physically or emotionally, to deny them physical intimacy, to engage in sexually immoral behavior, doing these things violates your marriage covenant. We all know this. Furthermore, doing these things constitutes sin against God and against your spouse. I think all that's pretty clear. The question on the table that we're considering is this. Do any of these things constitute biblical grounds for divorce? And I'll tell you, the elder board of this church wrestled with this question. And I want to just kind of peel back the curtain for a second here. As a teacher, as the primary preaching pastor here, bringing exposition every single week, I usually just sit down and do the hard work of wrestling through it. I pray through a passage. I consult the sources. I go into church history. I use hermeneutical principles. I do everything I possibly can. And making sure that I stay within the bounds of the accepted doctrine of this church. I never want to go against any doctrine that is clear in our statement or within the leadership of our church. But this this question, there's a lot of topics or a lot of uh, sides of this debate. And so I brought this exegesis to the elder board. And I said, brothers, I need help. And I, I told them, I'm committed to only preaching what we all faithfully, prayerfully agree on as the position, the understood position that we're going to get behind and support as a church. And so I did not go beyond them. And I gave them homework. I gave them a lot of, I said, read this book, examine these verses. I did it before vacation too. I said, I'm going to come back. (laughs) I'm not even joking. (laughs) I'm going to come back and we're going to talk about this. And we did. And we prayed and we examined and we talked and we, we wrestled over this. And so this is, where we've come to, because the, this is the challenge, is that the Bible does not speak to every single case. And I, I read lots of books, and they all admit, the Bible doesn't speak to every single situation in marriage or divorce. But much of the time, what you're dealing with is biblical principles. And you, as the pastor, leader, counselor, are trying to apply biblical principles to a situation. Very clearly, according to Matthew 19:9. Sexual immorality is lawful grounds for divorce. According to 1 Corinthians 7.15, desertion by an unbelieving spouse is lawful grounds. If we were to look at Exodus 21.10, Hebrew wives had grounds for divorce in their husbands if they failed to protect, provide, or love them physically. And yet again, there are so many unique situations that must be addressed with wisdom and discernment. And so let me share with you where we have landed as a leadership of this church, at, this, at least at this juncture. Christians are to be faithful in their marriages, seeking holiness and Christ-likeness. We all affirm this. We are to do this until death parts us. That's God's design. However, when a Christian spouse hardens their heart and sins against their spouse in violation of their marriage covenant, the principles of Matthew 18 apply. And we bring everything we've learned in Matthew 18 to bear in this situation. And so the steps are very clear at that point. First, the sinning spouse needs to be confronted by their own spouse. And I would even add to that, if your spouse is in sin and you don't ever say anything to them about that sin, you're doing nothing except contributing to the, the breakdown of your own marriage. You must, as a Christian believer, confront your spouse if, you're, if they're in sin. And I'm not talking about taken their head off. I'm talking about confronting them if there's a sin that is worthy enough and, and egregious enough that this is going to put our marriage in jeopardy. You must go to your spouse. Now, if you confront them and they repent, guess what? You've won them over and you praise the Lord. And now you can keep on working together and living together in a loving obedience to Christ. That's your first order of business. However, if they do not listen to you, involve somebody else bring somebody else with you now this may involve couples counseling that might be formal or informal i've known many situations where a christian couple is in they're in turmoil they're struggling and they'll go to someone else in the church another christian couple who they trust who they love sometimes they're their friends and they say listen we're going through some really hard things right now can you just walk with us in this season we're obviously not seeing this clearly can you please help us And this Christian couple will come alongside and they'll walk with them and they'll give them counsel, wise counsel. They'll pray with them and they'll try to help them work through it. And by God's grace, there's been issues that have been resolved in that process. And that's good and that's right. The goal, again, is to repent and reconcile and be restored. But what if they don't listen even to them? At that point, you tell the elders of the church. You bring it to us. Because at this point, what's most likely happening is that somebody in the marriage is living in open rebellion. Maybe both, but certainly one. Now we're talking about very dangerous territory. And if that sinning spouse hardens their heart and refuses to listen even to the church, we now have no choice but to recognize them as an unbeliever, at which point the principles of 1 Corinthians 7.15 apply. Again, the goal is to do absolutely everything humanly possible to save a marriage all while praying for repentance and forgiveness to take place. But I would even say to you and I would commend this to you if you're having marriage problems, don't cover it up. Don't hide it. Don't 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 just never talk about it because what happens is that you, all that happens is you grow bitter. And that becomes where this begins to unravel. So you come to church, you look good, Your kids seem good, but deep down there's a root of bitterness. If you don't address that, it will certainly, and over time, harden your heart. And Jesus warns about that, doesn't he? He warns against hardness of heart. Because at that point, it doesn't matter what the church says, you're going to harden your heart and destroy yourself and destroy your marriage. Don't do that. Don't harden your heart. Rather, open your heart to your spouse Don't cover up sins. Don't grow bitter in your marriage. Talk to your spouse. Pray with them. Pray for them. Talk to a trusted Christian counselor or a Christian friend. Talk to the church, the pastor, myself, the elders. Do everything you possibly can to be faithful in your marriage. And I would add another caveat to this. If you are being abused physically, call the police immediately. Call the police immediately. I've seen churches cover this kind of stuff up too. Well, I don't know. Maybe he's really sorry. Call the police and then tell the church. Again, repentance and reconciliation might be possible. I've read stories about Christian couples where there's abuse, but then there's genuine repentance, there's forgiveness, and there's restoration, and it it can keep on going. But if this is happening, God provides the arm of the law for a reason to protect people. So don't spurn the ministry of God for good behavior that he's given to us. If you are being abused physically, don't. Keep it a secret. Call the police. Tell the church. And we'll deal with it. And we'll help you. And by God's grace, that person will repent. And if they don't, we'll walk through that necessary process with with you in a safe place. Beloved, Time does not permit me to exhaust every single scenario. And I know that many of you probably have scenarios in your head where you know somebody, or maybe it's you. What about this? What about that? What about this? This is so intense. This is so expansive. And so here, the overarching message of what the Bible says about this, that God desires your marriage to work. He wants you to honor Him in your marriage. He wants you to be faithful Yes, he permits divorce under certain circumstances, under egregious and sinful circumstances. But he hates divorce because of what it does to individuals and to families and to societies and even to our testimony. And so we are to be faithful in marriage. Be faithful in your covenant. And even if they're hard to love, you've got to work a little bit harder, don't you? But pray for God to help you Pray for God's grace in your own life. And I'll tell you, this is the speck log thing. It's very easy to see the sin in your spouse's eye. But make sure you're dealing with the log in your own eye first. And then you can see clearly to go to your spouse and say, I love you so much, we need to talk about something. But do it right, do it biblically, beloved. Do it faithfully. But what if you do get divorced? Or what if you have been divorced? Divorced. What happens next? Can you remarry? Must you remain single? I want to bring us to that topic next time when we talk about remarriage. And so we will address that by God's grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have waded into very deep territory. N- not because you haven't spoken to what you desire. You want marriages to work. You've commanded that we are faithful in marriage. You hate divorce. And so, Lord, in in your mind, this is all very clear. That when you look at us, O Lord, in your omniscience and in your omnipresence, you see in our present, in every single situation, you know in our relationships what's right, what's wrong. You know what can be reconciled and what will not be reconciled. But, Lord, from our vantage point, we don't. We don't always see it. We have to do this all by faith. We have to work hard to discern your will and discern how much is too much, how far must I go. We have to bear with other people. We have to love other people. Lord, for us, this is oftentimes so difficult. And Lord Jesus, I know that you faced this with people who were asking you these questions when you walked this earth 2,000 years ago. And so God, I would just plead with you to have mercy on us because I know that we have done this wrong so many times. I know that there are believers in this congregation who maybe they're sitting here and they have divorced their spouse for the wrong reasons. Or they have married somebody they shouldn't have married. But here they are, and now they're married and they want to know what to do about it. Lord, help them to be a good spouse. Or maybe there are those who are here, Father, who are not yet married and living as though they are. Convict them, Lord, and help them to see that they need to honor you with their relationships. And know that you are honored and you will bless a godly marriage. That we are not to live in sin, in fornication, but to honor you. You bless marriage. You love marriage. Help us to love marriage as well. And so, Lord, as we wrestle through all these issues humbly and patiently and prayerfully, Will you give us understanding? Will you give us light and wisdom? Not to make provision for sinfulness. Not to make divorce easy. But to have your mind and understand what your will is in every situation. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in this charge. And how can we be faithful? How can we know? How do we even have Christian marriage at all? Well, because you saw us struggling and even dead in our sins. And you as the divine spouse, the divine husband, if it were, reached down and rescued us and cleaned us up and redeemed us and purified us and washed us with the water of the gospel and of the word. And you drew us to yourself in the same way a husband draws a wife to himself in love. You brought us close in intimacy and spiritual joy And you gave up your life for us to save us on the cross. And we, by our repentance of our sins and our faith and trust in you, we can have new life. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here who's never hated their sin and repented of their sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ, I pray that they would do that even right now. And, Lord, even in marriage, maybe there are those in a spiritually mixed marriage Lord, if there are those here who have an unbelieving spouse, grant them repentance and salvation and life. Make that spouse's joy complete by granting them a believing spouse. Help us, O Lord. We want to reach the lost. Have mercy. Be gracious. And we thank you for the blessing that we have of knowing the Son of God. And how do we know? By the ministry of the Spirit. All for the glory of God of God the Father. We thank you and we love you, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.